in a quarter of the last 80 mass shootings in America. Authorities say this alleged shooter's massacre followed the grim pattern of those who aim to kill a large number of people quickly. They tied four weapons to him, an AR-15 assault rifle, a sawed-off shotgun, and two Glock handguns. He's carrying two handguns and a Bushmaster AR-15-style rifle, the two guns used in the shooting, a handgun, and an AR-15-style rifle like this. That sounds like an AR-15, and then, sure enough, I mean... Yeah, that was an automatic rifle, without a doubt. Killed victims as young as 18 months, babies, with a semi-automatic rifle, an AR-15. Police say he used an AR-15 assault rifle. He was armed with an AR-15 assault-style rifle and three handguns like these. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. Eight dead in Atlanta, ten dead in Boulder, Colorado. As we emerge from the pandemic and seek to return to normal, the shocking violence in these two cities reveals that normal is in fact distressingly abnormal. We have another pandemic in this nation that has nothing to do with the virus, but instead is wrought by easy access to guns and a culture that fetishes their use and the right to bear them as a means of self-expression and identity. We face a pandemic of coronavirus. We have another epidemic in America called guns. For all you Second Amendment purists, let's get real for a moment. The Second Amendment did not envision fucking assault rifles of the kind used in Boulder on Monday afternoon. It was the product of a certain time and mindset where people carried muskets, for God's sakes. It was not meant to be an eternally binding creed. From my cold, dead hands. But the gun lobby has done just that. And worse. I understand and support an individual's right to protect themselves. Hell, I used to have a concealed weapon permit myself until it was taken from me in the wake of my own imprisonment. So folks, I get it. But all things being equal, nobody needs a fucking AR-16. Nobody. It's only used in killing other human beings. They are designed to inflict as much harm and casualty and death as is humanly possible. The public ownership of military-style weapons designed for mass killing used to be justified by a radical fringe as tools to resist the government and its military or law enforcement representatives. That fringe has now been mainstreamed by the right. Witnesses the armed occupation of Michigan Capitol and the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Who is going to protect us from the armed lunatics from which the majority of all mass killings derive? It's tragic. This officer had seven children, ages five to 18. I just had that officer's whole family in my office two weeks ago to give him an award. And so it is personal. This is my community. I live here. And to have something like this happen so, so close to where you live and, and to know the fear in the community and to know that the officers sacrifice themselves. It's heartbreaking. Before March 16th, it had been a year since there had been a large-scale shooting in a public place. In 2018, the year that a gunman killed 17 people and injured 17 others at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, there were 10 mass shootings in which four or more people were killed in a public setting. The following year, when a gunman targeting Latinos in El Paso, Texas, killed 22 people, there were nine such shootings. 
President Joe Biden had not made gun control a major priority during the first weeks of his presidency, but his tone on Wednesday seemed to signal a decisive shift. He called on the Senate to quickly pass two House bills passed earlier this year and first introduced after the Parkland shooting that extend background checks to private sellers and extend the time limit to conduct checks on purchasers. Biden said it was wrong to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save lives in the future. And uh, those families who are mourning today because of gun violence in Colorado and Georgia, all across the country, we have to act. So there's not more of you, there's few of you as time goes on. Thank you so much. The debate in the Senate on the measure was predictably split between red and blue. Yet another partisan fight that seems to have no middle ground. Leave it to Ted fucking Cruz to take the most extreme position and accuse Democrats of creating nothing but drama. I agree it's a time for actions. And by the way, I don't apologize for thoughts or prayers. I will lift up in prayer people who are hurting. And I believe in the power of prayer. And the contempt of Democrats for prayers is an odd sociological thing. What happens in this committee after every mass shooting is Democrats propose taking away guns from law-abiding citizens. Because that's their political objective. Every time there's a shooting, we play this ridiculous theater where this committee gets together and proposes a bunch of laws that would do nothing to stop these murders, Mr. Cruz said. But what they propose, not only does it not reduce crime, it makes it worse. That's because you refuse to do anything to solve the problem, you schmuck. Well, this is one of these issues that makes the American public think that Washington has lost their minds. You have 90% support for background checks. The red flag law that Garrett was talking about has 85% support. And you have a president who feels very deeply and has huge history with these issues. As you know, he was co-sponsor in the 1990s of the assault weapon ban. He obviously led the efforts for President Obama to figure out what to do and how to move forward. And so the, what Biden needs to do is say to the country it's time to actually get something done here. After Sandy Hook we should have realized that Republicans will never lift a finger to fix this problem. Ever. We are trying to reason with a group that still insists that Joe Biden stole the election and that climate change doesn't exist. They will never do anything to solve this problem. Biden will need to go it alone and push through tough executive action. I will say that his view, the vice president's view and our policy team's view is that um, it's not just about uh, addressing uh, gun access. That's important. Uh, and obviously there's legislation that's under consideration on background checks that they both strongly support. They want to see move forward. Uh, it's also about addressing community violence um, and, uh, you know, a range of issues uh, that are root causes and, and kind of lead to the the uh, the deaths and the uh, and the uh, impact that we're seeing that's so troubling. But how many times do we have to go through this before we actually pass meaningful legislation that will stop more mass shootings? It seems every few years there is a movement and moral hand-wringing around this issue, especially after a terrible shooting. America awoke today to another nightmare, stunning, shocking, savage, but unsurprising. Inaction has made this horror completely predictable. Inaction by this Congress makes us complicit. When it comes to guns, this country is a sickness. There is no other word for it than that. It's unhealthy, destructive, and ultimately it leads to scores of people dying. Still, 
The right has taken an extreme and absolutist approach to approaching any gun control measures under the guise of what they call a slippery slope. It's particularly important to the gun lobby because since even the most NRA members actually support modest measures like background checks, it is strategically critical for the NRA to argue that such reforms should be defeated because they will ultimately lead to more radical measures that the gun-owning public strongly opposes. Now, our friends on the left always want to go straight to gun control as the solution for reducing this problem of violence. Before we start looking at controlling the rights of law-abiding citizens and regulating their guns and even setting the grounds to confiscate their guns, why don't we look at why this violence has increased to begin with? The fact is that the slippery slope argument is, at its core, nothing but uninformed right-wing fear-mongering. It's the stuff of conspiratorial whispers and Trump-like declarations that Joe Biden and his radical cohorts will come to take your guns. You know what? Good. I want him to take your fucking guns. These people, in Trump's own words, are sick and they're killing us with all this crap. These are leaders and lawmakers with real power over public safety acting like kids who think it's cool to play with guns. It evokes Sean Carter's famous admonition to those fake tough guys out there. Shoot at you actors like movie directors. This ain't a movie, dog. And this is not a movie. And let's be honest, before the right became a radicalized freak show, we were actually able to pass some sensible gun legislation. But when they learned an absolutist stance could be used as a wedge issue to drive the base, it became all or fucking nothing. If Congress had been persuaded by the slippery slope argument during the Brady Bill debate, since 1994, we would have allowed more than 2 million legally prohibited gun buyers to buy guns over the counter that were instead blocked by Brady background checks. But let's face it, today there would be no Brady Bill. Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley would certainly block it. And now for some relatively good news. After months of pushing Donald Trump's big lie, the election was rigged against him, weaving bizarre conspiracy theories appeared to intimate that long-dead Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez had manipulated voting machines to change votes in the U.S. and ingratiating herself with Trump to the point where he reportedly considered naming her to be a special counsel overseeing an investigation of voter fraud. Lawyer Sidney Powell has given up the game. In a court filing defending Powell from a billion-dollar defamation lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems, her lawyer said the claims she made on national TV for months were not at all true and too ridiculous to be defamatory. Local prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, are actively assessing whether they can apply false statement charges against Rudy fucking Giuliani for his role in pushing Trump's big lie about election fraud and pushing a false narrative with the state's 2020 election results, according to the authorities. Yeah, look, there's going to have to be accountability because you had a whole bunch of lawyers and politicians led by Donald Trump who systematically lied to voters before the election, then lied to the, their voters after the election. That big lie then culminated in violence on January 6th at the Capitol. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up 
And if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. Giuliani, Trump's disaster of a personal lawyer and walking fucking freak show, twice presented Georgia state legislators with fake evidence and wild allegations of a conspiracy theory to commit widespread election fraud. Separately, on two recorded phone calls to state election officials, then-President Trump made specific false claims that votes for him were discarded in suitcase full of votes for Joe Biden were trucked in. All of this was a product of Rudy's sick and pickled brain, aided by assertions from Sidney Kraken Powell. Note that all of them are being sued for billions by the makers of Dominion voting systems for their false assertions about the company. Giuliani, acting on Trump's behalf, went before the Georgia State Senate Judiciary Committee on December 3rd of 2020 and laid out the bogus details of his election conspiracy claim. That woman. Look at her taking those ballots out. Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room, hiding around. They look like this. They look like they're passing out dope. Amongst his most blatant lies, that the state counted 96,600 phantom votes. That's the same bonkers claim that fueled Sidney Powell's attempt to overturn Georgia's election results with her so-called Kraken lawsuit, one that was fucking shredded by a federal judge. for the main event. It has long been my belief that Donald Trump put this country through needless trauma and we will not be able to heal or move past this moment until he has been held accountable. Despite his Teflon-like ability to shrug off political scandal and impeachment, the wheels of justice continue to wind their way towards his own inevitable indictment. We are seeing it move towards the result in Fulton County and hopefully prosecutors will drag Rudy with Trump into that imbroglio. But it's in Manhattan where the most tantalizing prize remains. Cy Vance's investigation of Trump's taxes and the Trump Organization has spawned a sprawling investigation that seems likely to bring down the whole house of fucking cards. On Friday's episode, I discussed how prosecutor Mark Pomerantz, using mob-busting best practices, is attempting to get Trump's longtime underboss, Alan H. Weisselberg, the Trump Organization's CFO, to flip on the Donald and unearth the financial bodies that will ultimately put him away for decades. Making that happen is no easy task. Prosecutors will have to pressure Weisselberg by threatening his family with prosecution, and ultimately Allen himself may have to do time as well. The only alternative will be for Allen to cut a deal to save himself and his sons. One of the witness prosecutors have been willing to grill as they seek to squeeze Weisselberg and his sons is Allen's ex-daughter-in-law Jennifer Weisselberg. The former ballet dancer and event producer was married to Allen's son Barry for 14 years, and was granted a front row seat into the dysfunction, weirdness, and abject criminality of the Trump Organization. Today, she is our exclusive guest on Maya Culpa. To this date, Weisselberg has told her story to very few, as she has been involved in an acrimonious divorce with Barry that saw her lose custody of her children. 
But a woman scorned is nothing to fuck with, and Jennifer has nothing left to lose. She's now on a mission to expose the whole family for what they are and help the Manhattan District Attorney get inside the mind of Trump's own financial brain. This is juicy stuff, folks, so get ready to be blown away because Jen's got a story to tell. And let's listen now to that conversation. So say hypothetically, if the district attorney managed to somehow get your ex-father-in-law, Alan Weisselberg, to testify against Donald, in what way would that be significant? Does he know more about Trump and where the so-called financial bodies are buried more than anybody else, more than any other individual? Absolutely. He's the one. He knows everything. Alan Weisselberg is the puppet master and he delves it out. But then he, you know, he tells, if they know, he's key. People don't know who he is. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question. If Alan hypothetically ended up flipping, how would that affect your life? I mean, you know, now that you're divorced from his son, Barry, how would that affect your life? Going it wouldn't forward. affect it at all. I, I, I'm already divorced. I never got a dime. I was never brought in any accounts. In fact, you know, they stole, they took most of them themselves before uh, I knew I was getting, even knew I was getting a divorce. So I'm good on my own. I don't need, I don't need anything from them. I, I'm fine. Okay. That's the most important thing. So let me ask you this then. Were you able to see up close how Donald Trump corrupts those that, um, that are around him to be basically as corrupt as he is? Absolutely, they are. They're all the same. Well, give me your examples. Well, when Fred leads the way of how things are done financially to Alan, then he teaches Donald, then the formula seems to work. <laughs> but then Donald and Alan become partners, you know, you know, they, they both know everything that's going on. Um, and then they pass it on to their children. So it just, it doesn't end. It's, it's legacies of, uh, of control and sociopathic behavior and, you know, legal business practices. It's, uh, it's incredible. Um, but they brag about it so much. You know, they get high off of it. So how did you see Alan up close with Donald in terms of this corrupt activity in what way you mean during the investigation you know in 18 what exactly why don't you start it off from the first time that you guys actually met why don't you why don't we start there why don't we start how did you actually meet barry what was your first impression of alan when you first met him you know what was your impression of the family what was your impression of the trumps the first time that you met I'm nothing but honest. So here it goes. I hired Barry. Um, he couldn't get a job. I hired him and gave him his first job uh, at a big entertainment company on Long Island that I was running, managing, casting for events. He came in and asked for a job. He was terrible, but I gave him a chance. <laughs> you know, I gave him a job. Uh, I gave him an opportunity. And um, he you know, traveled the country and and probably had the only experience outside of uh, the Hammerstein ballroom and then, the, the, the you know, working for his dad. So I offered him that job and that's how it started. It was about 1994, 94. And what was your impression of Alan the first time that you met him? It was strange. It was different. It, it, it was something odd about... 
the way the family works, uh, the four of them. It's just sort of inbred. I don't know who's the adult and who's not. It's just all, uh, it's just all a little crazy, not classy. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's unique. I don't think it's what anyone would think, but it's not the same person that shows up at the golf course on Mother's Day. It's completely the opposite. Well, let me ask you this. You just said a few seconds ago, like, you know, that there was a formula uh, regarding Fred. Explain that to me. What's the formula that, that you're referring to as far as Fred Trump passing down to Donald and then obviously to Alan as well? Because as we all know, Alan was basically given to Donald by Fred so that Fred would be able to keep track of the money that he gave Donald when he first started. That's how, I mean, Alan was the bookkeeper for Fred. And again, since, you know, Donald was now coming into New York, in essence, to take over all of Manhattan, and he was being bankrolled by his dad, he wanted to make sure that the money went into real estate, not into some other crazy type of venture that Donald was known to jump into. Uh, The control between... The control's insane. I mean, between the control of the families, they all have their own. Just controlling. They're just the most controlling people. I mean, the story that Alan tells, he tells, and I'm not sure if it's real. I don't know, but it is. This is what I've heard over and over. Uh, He takes credit for teaching Donald Trump everything he knows. He said that, you know, he worked for Fred before he was a taxi driver um, from Canarsie. Read an article in paper that said book, bookkeeping. He went in and he didn't know it was Fred. So Fred taught him the way that things are basically do, be doing now, the way they're doing things now. Supposedly it's the same formula, the same pattern. I can't clarify that, but um not exactly sure about all the pushback on Donald, but it was, you know, my, my words from Alan were that Fred loved Alan in the way he did his books for him to benefit him. And, you know, including setting up the ways to hide gifts and compensation from the beginning. Uh, but he didn't want Donald working there. So Alan told me this story about how Donald used to sneak in and hide under his desk. And he taught him everything he knows. So apparently you taught him everything he knows. All right. Well, there you have it. So I guess the art of the deal is really the art of Alan Weisselberg. The first time that I ever met Alan, and I write about this in my book, Disloyal, it really had to do with when Don Jr. first brought me up to the 26th floor when they were having the issue over at Trump World Tower. And there were many people that were in the room that were brought in because, as you know, With Donald, everything is a big show. And it was very important that everybody would be there from uh, Alan to Matt, who's the chief operating officer, to Sonia, to uh, Jason, to, you know, um, at that time, there was Eric Sacher, there was uh, McConney. I mean, there were so many people that were brought in all for the sole purpose of providing me with the information that I needed in order to prove that Donald had not taken money from the Condominium Association. And by the way, to be fair, he did not. The allegations that were raised against him were absolutely unfounded, 
in every respect. But going back to Alan, I, I have to tell you, of all of the people I had found to be sort of engaging with me and wanting, Alan was always five steps behind. He was always away from the fray. He didn't really want me there. Um, I, I was able to, to tell that from the beginning. Um, I don't think he particularly liked me as far as somebody that could interfere with his relationship with Donald. It's very, um, yeah, it was very strange. But over the time, we actually developed a relationship, but it was not a personal relationship. Like I had built with just about everybody at the organization. With Alan, it was always business, pure business. And there was never any real discussions per se about family, about, you know, um, issues. I mean, the only family issue was when he needed something, you know, i.e. the children, the grandchildren, I should say, and things like, and things like that, or to discuss whether or not I like this car or what do you think about this? It was never really personal. Like I could tell you things about virtually everybody in the entire organization as it relates to their personal life but not Alan. Alan wore everything so close to the vest, which is funny because I didn't find Barry to be that way. But Alan was very closed and um, everything was all about Donald. Donald, 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 Donald. And how many times he would fuck people over, right? Um, as far as the company was concerned, the employees, simply because it provided a benefit for him. I mean, they were always known as heckle and jekyll, right. right? So if somebody's salary was getting cut, Alan was the one behind it. Even though Donald was the one who was signing off on the check, it was always Alan who put it forward. It was his idea. I think his whole existence still, you know, his work depends on, in his mind, saving Donald money. And otherwise, Donald won't be happy with him. So... Yeah, he's the one who finds ways to save money, shift money, turn Mar Largo into a business. Uh, and then he goes and excitedly talks to Donald about the way we could do things. And it seemed to me that if Donald was saving money, he was like, you know, great idea. You know what I mean? But his worth was determined on, uh, even if it was company health insurance, it was like, I could save you. 50 bucks it was like today I saved money. You know, I, I yeah, that's his worth. Was um pleasing Donald that became his, his only you know, uh, worth in life to me. Well, it's funny that you bring up the concept of health coverage because my experience actually with Alan in that in that field was somewhat different than than the way you're describing it. And I'm going to tell you why. Because to do what Donald wanted to do would have negatively affected Alan. So while Alan was there always to protect Donald's ass, he was also concerned equally, if not more so, about his own ass and especially about Barry's and, and so on. I'm going to give you the example. So one day, Donald's sitting and reading the paper, right? It's, it's, it, was a, it was just one of those average Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and he's reading the paper and it was all about the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. And as much as Donald hated Obamacare because it had Obama's name to it, 
right? And anything with Obama's name on it just really drove him Alan, crazy. Right. He actually called my he called me in and Alan as well and said, I'm looking at the paper, and it says that if you opt out of your insurance program and into Obamacare, something like it would only cost you a thousand dollars. Who said that Alan? Alan said that? No, Donald said it to really? Alan. Okay. Basically, he wanted to shut down the entire Trump Organization insurance program <laughs> and have everybody opt into Obamacare, which is funny because he thought that it would save him money, meaning Donald, to which Alan replied, you will lose every single person in this office because, you know, we run a good insurance policy for all of the employees which is true. They, they, they did. They had a good policy, but he wanted to put, Donald wanted to put everyone into Obamacare because it would be cheaper for him, uh, than, <laughs> than continuing to pay for the health care, especially considering there were several women. Yeah. They, they pay people so poorly. <laughs> Give me a break. I remember dental care was if, you know, we're not going to pay dental care, but, if you have something bad, we'll decide if you're, we're going to allow it. That was how it was for me. You got to like ask if you can go. <laughs> it's just, it's too controlling for me. It's, I never knew that Donald was doing the same thing as Alan and like looking for things like Obamacare and saying, I found a way to save money. I guess it's mutual. They're both in that, you know? Yeah. Hence why we used to call them frickin' frack or heckle and jekyll. That's ex the best two examples to describe the two of them. One lied, and then the other swore for them. But let me ask you this question. One of the first times that you ever met Donald Trump was at a shiva for one of Barry or Alan's associate's mothers, something like that. Now, this was Alan's mother. Alan's mother. So this was just before you and Barry were married, and Donald Trump was there as well. Now, you talk about how he had made fun of Alan's home and then proceeded to hit on you and then showed you nude photos of other women that he had been with in the past. Talk to me about this moment. Like, what year was it? How did this all unfold? How did it make you feel? And what did Alan do in your defense, if anything? People ask me the first time I met Donald, it was there. I wasn't married. I had just, you know... I was working, uh, Barry had just come home from like FAU. I was, uh, when I would be on Long Island, I was living at the Weisselbergs in the house. Alan's father passed. So one of the nights at the Shiver, Donald came and paid his respects in a white limo. I don't think he understands that the lifestyle he lives could not be more contrary. He didn't expect it. And he got out of the limo and said, Oh my God, this is where my CFO lives. How embarrassing. What? He walks in and whatever was supposed to be respectful, you know, Donald takes over the room and all of a sudden we're an homage of this person. I mean, there was only like seven or eight people there. I think the prayer got lost. Everyone clamors around uh, Donald who sits down on a couch. He starts, you know, passing out pictures of, hit, of girls on a nude yacht, like, like cards, you know what I mean? Just being the center of attention with no respect. Although Alan didn't expect respect. You sort of, he sort of led the conversation and let you know when you could speak. So 
the twinkle in his eye when his boss walks in is, I don't even think he remembered why he was there. You know, it was Donald's here and a little uncomfortable, but Donald's here. I was like serving the rugula. You know, I just was met Barry and we were dating. But Donald just simply said, I mean, he was between wives. He just simply said, oh, you know, who's that girl? Who's that? Who's that? She's cute. I think it was the first time that Alan could actually put that forth, something that Donald likes. And he was like, oh, you want her? Yeah, yeah sure. You, you, you know, sure. No problem. You can have her. I thought I looked back to Alan and the point of the story is not, you know, between wise, not that I cared that Donald, who I didn't even really understand who he was, quite frankly, was willing to serve up me like the rugula, just like, oh, you want it? That's going to make me feel good. I'm giving something to Donald I can't usually offer. We'll never forget that. It's just like, you know, I'm dating your son and wow, there's no limit to serving and pleasing this guy at any cost. Yeah, well, Alan used to do the same exact thing in the office. I know. You know, where everything was always about, you know, Donald, and he really truly was a financial protector of him. I mean, in all fairness, there's not a dollar that came in or went out of the Trump organization for as long as I was, in, you know, there. And, I, you know, that's going back to at least, you know, 2006, 2007. There's not one dollar that came in or went out that Allen did not track. I mean, he really watched over the pennies. And it's funny because I remember Trump turning around and saying, Allen's the greatest. He's the greatest. There's not a penny ever missing. The guy is so precise. He watches. And what he was really perfect at was covering your ass. Anything that had to come in or go out was always signed off by Donald. There was a D on everything, and he kept the papers because his biggest fear was that if there was a mistake and there was money that was lost, it would cost him his job. And Alan always knew that this is the best job that he's ever going to get. Because, you know, Alan is not a CPA. He's a bookkeeper. He's not and a CPA. That's okay. He's not a CPA. Right. And when people would find that out and say, wait, 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 Donald Trump's CFO is not a CPA, they would always be shocked. And, and Trump would always turn around and say the same thing. If I had a CPA, he would cost me much more money. No, no way. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, and I was always thinking to myself, because he did the same thing with me, but I was in a different situation. You know, I was financially well off, uh, and I didn't go to work for Donald for the money. I went for really the excitement and for the celebrity power and fame. That's really what hooked me into it. But I was always shocked that, you know, Alan, for the CFO of this apparent billion, billion, billion-dollar company, really... um you know, was not compensated. But Trump never thought compensating his executives too well meant that he was stupid, that the less that you pay people, the smarter that other people think you are. Actually, you know, in all fairness, he lost so many good people over the years while while I was there, from from lawyers to just real estate guys and contractors, construction people, um, engineers, he lost them all because legitimately when it came to paying salaries, he was really super cheap when it came to that. Beyond cheap. No, I mean, no one that works there really gets paid like you would think. 
But yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. Yeah, that's how it was. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out last week's heartbreaking episode about a dad fighting for his daughter's custody. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the January 7th episode with Javier Pena and Steve Murphy, the former DEA agents who took down Pablo Escobar. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Were there any other times that Donald hit on you or made a suggestive comment over the years? He said things about my daughter, right? And I've talked about that when she was... um playing tennis over at Bedminster, New Jersey, that I probably should have punched him in the fucking face, you know, in hindsight being 2020. But obviously I couldn't. He was my boss. It's his golf courts and so on. And plus, I also knew what he was trying to say. He thought he was actually complimenting me for having a beautiful daughter. That's what he was doing to but Alan. That's what he was doing to Alan. You know, your house may be gross, but like, look at her. I mean, not bad. You know, good job with that yeah, exactly. It's like a roundabout sort of compliment. Hey, you know, by me hitting on your daughter uh, means that, you know, she's special and, you well, know, you should enough. take it as a compliment. Yeah. yeah. My daughter certainly didn't think so. That's for sure. Were there any other times that he hit on you? No, no. But when, you know, we would go to Trump National, Briarcliff, it was always the thing even when I was working at Miss Universe, it was always the thing that he came in and sort of did a check of how everyone looked. And it was sort of like, no, she doesn't look good today, the waitresses. And like, oh, yeah, you got it together. You'll do my table. And like that girl ends up being the receptionist for Celebrity Apprentice. He was always just sort of, he didn't ever hit on me again overtly, but he, he made a comment if you looked good, but he made a comment if you didn't. It was like, not that one, not that one, this one. It was like, you know, entitled to like, you know, like I think, I don't think I really care, but didn't make you feel good when he sort of was like, eh. It's funny that you say that because it's really funny that you say that because I can't tell you how many times his opening line when people would come to the office and they would bring, let's say, their daughter. And the first thing that he would say, or their wife or their girlfriend, and the first thing that he would say, regardless whether she was, um, you know, attractive or not, 
in his eyes, it made no difference. He would say the same line, which is, whoa, you are beautiful. And that was sort of his disarming way of getting a conversation going with whoever it was that was coming in. If I didn't see that a hundred times, I didn't see it once. <laughs> Personally, I found it creepy, but in all fairness, I put up with all of this bullshit because it was Donald. And because that I just, after the first time, I was kind of weirded out a little bit. about yeah, right. it. The second time it was kind of now becoming familiar by the 30th time. I used to have people in my office and they would come, you know, and I could name 20 people right off the bat, but I won't because some of them may be listening to this and I don't want to upset, you know, their, you know, them or their, their daughter or their wife. And when we, they would come to my office first before I would take them into Donald's office. And I turned around and I said to him, just watch this. The second you walk into his office, the first thing out of his mouth is going to compliment your wife or your daughter or so on. And lo and behold, the first thing he did is compliment that. But I got to tell you something. Many people appreciated it. And that's the disarming nature of Donald Trump. Many people, they took it as if, one, he was telling the truth, two, that Donald Trump was flattering them, and three, that they should be flattered that Donald Trump flattered them. The whole thing is so circular and so sick. Oh, I think the girls that I was around, it was like if he he either like picked them out, like, oh, you, I flattered you or I didn't, it was sort of his like marking. But I never knew he would say, oh, whoa, to anyone he actually authentically didn't think was hot. I didn't never seen that before. Interesting. But that doesn't feel good. It's almost like I felt like when I saw him, you got to look, he'll make fun of you. It's like, oh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's been a while. I mean, it was always a comment, always a comment about how a girl looked or didn't, especially when they're working for him and sort of like, what can I do for you? Maybe I can bring you in the office. Maybe you can be the receptionist for Celebrity Apprentice. It, it just was, yeah, it was obvious. But I don't think people spoke back. I think he spoke, he owned, and whatever he said, you just, for me, being around them, on a, you know, whether it was on his plane down to Florida, you sat, you listened. But if he asked you a question, you better come up with a really good one, complimentary to him that was smart. You had to just listen. You never knew. But I don't know, commands a room, but that's my experience. I don't know him in the office. Well, yeah, well, in the office, again, everything is all about disarming the person who's coming in for whatever the issue might be. But, Jen, I do want to ask you that in an interview with NBC News, you described the way in which the Trump organization would try and control people with money and with things, in your specific case, the apartment. Describe for me how this played out in your own life with Barry at this time. It was like being a slave to the company. I didn't see it at first, but the gift is not a gift. It's a way to control you. Whatever they did it for their own interest, tax-wise, um, that was sitting there. I don't, we really don't know why they couldn't have just sold it. It was like, let's put Barry there. I didn't realize later it was for their own interest. Um, but then, you know, other compensation that's given, you know, if it's in lieu of a raise, that means that we're not going to pay you with the W-2 and we're not going to show it in Trump payroll. But it's not about that. It's so controlling. You're going to basically do what we say, even if that's criminal, whatever I ask you to do, even if it's shady, 
you work here. And if you want to go somewhere else, you know, you're showing you make 150, but every year when you're given compensation, that's like Alan's idea. Like, let's just pay Ava's tuition. Let's just pay, you know, uh, just pay us 400 for uh, the rent or the utilities there. Uh, you know, we'll just pay everyone's tuition at Columbia Grammar. Oh, you feel trapped if you wanted to go some, you know, even wanted to go somewhere else. It's like, no, I'll only pay. But that was compensation. If you could have gotten the raise yourself, it would show you make more money when you don't make more money for 21 years. <laughs> there's something wrong. The compensation is given in lieu of a raise. You know, it's always Alan's idea to come up with it. And then, you know, Donald acts and in a way it's generous and you feel like, thank you. But you're controlled. If you don't do you're enslaved. You want to go somewhere else? You don't have an apartment. Go somewhere else. Your kids aren't in school. Uh, you want to go to public school outside the city? Well, that fit, that 100000 is not available to you in any other way in tuition. You're not going to get it in, in your W-2. I mean, you're totally controlled. Hard to get out, I guess. If you make that, yeah, Mount Allen make those decisions for you. That was the offering. Well, let me ask this question. Was Donald the one who paid for the children's tuition, or was it Alan? Because I was always under the impression that it was Alan who paid the tuition. That's how he told me. And that Donald had allowed the Weisselberg boys um, to be included on his gratuitous gift to the school each and every year as we would, of course, raise money. And that was one of my jobs being not only on the board of the school. At one point, I became the chairman of the board of trustees. But my sole purpose was to raise money because, you know, um, 10% of the school was on full ride scholarship. And, you know, I am proud to... Third Century Fund? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Right. So I would receive a letter uh, every year and it would be... Thank you, Melania and Donald, Jennifer and Barry, for your incredible donation. Uh, we'd sit at the front of the auction table. I guess he sent it for the four of us. I wasn't told about it. But in terms of in 2012, um, Ava had gotten into a few schools. Uh, you know, Barry had gone there. And for some reason, he just has to act like he's a mini Donald, or was that we're going to pay this out as compensation. That one was compensation to Barry. You know, I remember specifically my dad was upset about it because he said, why can't you just give them the 50,000? They can maybe go move out, move out of the city and do what they want. No, he, he couldn't go to, she couldn't go to Chapin. Alan said, Donald would pay only if you go to Columbia Grammar. Um, I don't think any of us could have afforded it. Uh, so the first, and Ava was given a, you know, I saw a check that was signed by Donald from the Trump work in lieu of a race. Wow. I legitimately, Alan had told me on a whole slew of occasions that, and it was one of the reasons why I ended up putting in the money that I fronted the money for the Stormy Daniels when Alan said to me, you know, I'm so I'm, I'm tight because, you know, I'm paying for all four grandchildren. And I was always curious to ask you that question. If you knew whether or not Alan was paying it or Donald was paying it, because I was always under the impression it was Alan. No, it the, the conversations which were, you know, in depositions were admitted by Barry was that. 
Alan never wanted to look like he was taking advantage of Donald's, you know, perks or whatever. He played that whole humble thing, humble thing for a while. But, um, you know, you know, it was very clear that whatever raises they would get, they were predetermined and not big. You know, you can't make the same thing for 21 years. It makes sense. But uh, it's not a gift when it's it's paid every year. Uh, the conversations would go and Barry himself testified to it. I met my father and Donald about January 8th every year. And I, you know, I believe the conversation, as Barry said, was, oh, just casual. You know, I don't know. Barry's done a great job this year. You know, whatever you want to do. And, and Donald would be like, yeah, it's great. And then Alan would be like, you know, Ava's starting school next year. And, oh, Donald would be like, oh, then, you know, I'll pay for it. And Alan would say, oh, my God, that's so nice. Thank you. We'll just use that in lieu of uh, any raise he would get. Um, so, you know, Ava didn't have a choice. And I think that that's so controlling. I, that's not, you know, those personal family things. But when we're still controlled by that. Uh, supposedly, Alan paid for my younger son. It seemed like he paid, not sure if that was compensation for him. But the fact that you have to always say, I'm paying for one. And thank you so much. You're such an incredible grandfather. You're so generous. I mean, Alan's cheap. That's that he's frugal. I think he uses Donald's resources to have a guy for everything and play the part. I don't think there's own. I mean, hmm. well, let me ask you this question. I know it's a rhetorical question, but why do you think Alan has remained so loyal to Donald over all of these years? And more importantly, here's the rhetorical part. Do you believe that Donald would be as loyal to Alan if push came to shove? And by the way, if there's any of my listeners that think the answer is yes, <laughs> you're listening to the wrong fucking show, folks. All right. Because like I said, it's a rhetorical well, question. Donald Trump doesn't give a shit about anyone or anything himself. other than himself. Yeah, but right. I'm going to let you answer well, the question. Well, I've been asked that question Jen. a lot lately. And when people ask it, even, you know, important people, is, you ask that question for a reason. Obviously, you know, a, a Donald would always say, I have a Jewish accountant. Is, is that, that's some sort of uh, look is that, you know, that's sort of like he's cheap. He does the things right. Look, look. But, um, you know, the question being, Alan is a very anxious, sort of robotic guy, sort of nervous, antisocial, not even close to the same at home. Um, I don't. I think he's insecure. I think he knows he's not one of the Trump family. And I think when the kids came in, he felt sort of, you know, not like the right hand uh, man. It was a team. You know, they started for 40 decades ago. That being said, um, Alan's entire worth, and at this point, um, is on what Donald thinks of him. If he's there all the time when Donald's there, I have to be there when he's there. Um, you might get in trouble. Barry, you can't take a day off when it's important. Donald will get mad. I mean, it was all about his worth is about what Donald thinks of him. And if he's saving him money and if he's not, and it's not enough and Donald thinks it's not enough, then he felt like he was going to be tossed. You know, it was always that. Look, I do have to tell you, I give Alan credit where credit is due. Alan and I were historically the first two people in the office every single day. Now for me, Right. For me, I, I get up early. I, I'm a riser at 4.30 in the morning, really? 5 o'clock. So, so, yeah, I've been like that forever. And, you know, for me, 
going to the office gave me the advantage that I needed as well to please Donald because by the time that people started, you know, rolling into work, I had already put in three, four hours worth of work. I was ahead of everybody by, you know, a third of a day, so to speak, right? Um, and it gave me the ability to have everything organized to get all my ducks in a row. But interestingly enough, because you're right, Alan is very robotic. He would come in first thing in the morning. I would go to his office. He would eat his bran flakes every single morning. Same shit every single morning. No change. Right. About 8, 12. First of all, he would go from his place, his place in Trump place, take his car out, go past 100 Central Park South, barrel into our apartment with no notice every morning, um, and then drive down to Trump Tower and park in there. I think he got there about 8, 8, 10 was like the thing. Uh, maybe earlier, seven fifty. Yeah, it was like seven. But right, right before eight, both of us were generally there. Well, you wouldn't feel comfortable. I mean, you like to get there before, red, very regimented. Sit at this, at this. I don't think it changes. But you know, he never wanted to be late if Donald walked in, and I think that Donald would come in and work. He would have lost his mind if you know. I think Donald would have said, "Like, where is he? you know?" It's kind of comments, but I get it. He wanted to be prepared too. Yep. Yeah, he was the loyal. He was the loyal soldier. He was, or he is? Nah, he is. He's he's a loyal soldier, you know. Um, but that that which brings me to the second part of my question: You believe that Donald would be as loyal to Allen, right? If push came to shove, no. Donald's in for himself at the end of the day. He would be loyal to anyone, his own kids. I don't think so. No, no way. They don't even have that relationship. No, no, not personally. I agree with you. With the tax deadline approaching, it's important to take steps to avoid being a victim of tax scams. Cyber criminals have used social security numbers to file fake tax returns in an attempt to steal refunds. File early and be aware of suspicious activities related to your return. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cyber criminals keep finding new ways to steal identities. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. I've been using LifeLock for years, and it's given me peace of mind from prying eyes. Here are some of the features. Device security blocks cybercriminals from stealing personal information on your devices. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at norton.com slash Cohen. You you had described at one point to somebody um, how you wish that you were not connected to these people whose value system is really, again, I described it as warped and misguided. No, I don't think they have souls. There's no moral compass. It is, it is when you do a deal, we're going to win. Uh, we don't care if you succeed at all. It's not about you. It's awful. The ethics, there's no ethics. To me, I wasn't in there, but the way they lived their lives, it was they just thought that, they were able to just do and win. There's no moral compass. I mean, there's no, I never saw anybody respect or have empathy for anyone. And that's who Alan is outside. I mean, 
uh, the abuse of power is dangerous when you give someone ultimate power. I just, I don't think it's, um, it's, it's dangerous, you know? It's not good. Jen, were there two different Alan Weisselbergs? Is there is the Alan Weisselberg at home empathetic towards, um, you know, I know he's empathetic. He's got a lot of empathy for his wife, I would suspect, uh, and for the boys. Am I misguided in yes. that? It's generations of abuse. You are absolutely, I think Donald would be more freaked out than the house. Oh, no, no, no. It's a, I'll just say it. I mean, it's a, it, 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 he goes into that office and it's gold and fancy and he matters you know but when he comes home I don't think he really feels he fits in no he lives a very modest like you know unclassy life like you know Hillary's more you know paper plates and it's totally different is opposite I think there's a lot of resentment for having to live both lives and not really being um Donald and re you know, reaping the benefits, although you're so dedicated to a life like that. But I don't think Donald would ever know. I mean, he is so verbally, he doesn't treat his wife well. I mean, his dad didn't. He's so verbally and emotionally abusive and controlling. It's nuts. So unhealthy. He would never act like that in front in the, in the office. But he does when you go to the country clubs. You know, they're a totally different person. But it brags so much. You know, brags and brags, sort of acts like a mini Donald in the way he's like yielding power. You can't, you can't negotiate with Alan. You know, he, he rules. He rules. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question. Let me, let's take it piece by piece, person by person. What was Alan's relationship with Don Trump Jr.? Inside, outside. What is, what does Alan think of Don Jr.? What was his sort of, feelings towards him because one thing I will tell you and I talk about it again in my book um disloyal some of the things that Donald had said about Junior in not just in front of me but in front of many people were so hurtful and they were so abusive that in several times I just picked myself up and I walked out of the office and I said I don't want to be here for this conversation I don't like it I'm not going to be a party to it um, you know, I, I was I felt very close to Don Jr. Well, I do respect Don. You know, we we had a lot of nice times and, um, you know, uh, even with Vanessa, with the children, you know, but I that doesn't surprise me at all. I am surprised that he sort of let that be obvious. But, yeah, he doesn't respect him. I think he thinks he's not smart. And he I think he might remind him of himself, you know, just not. I think Donald knows he's not that smart in, in Washington, but. I never knew that he was like that with Don Jr., but I didn't think that he thought that he was good at anything. It was sort of the child that was, it didn't matter really. <laughs> well, that was really, unfortunately, the father, Don, it was from Mr. Trump's fault, so to speak, because he was he would bash Don Jr. all the time in front of everybody. And so I guess Alan just felt, um, you know, that if, his, if the father could do it, he would do it the same way. My impression was that the kids were respected no matter what. But I know it wasn't the same re respect as it was for Ivanka. I mean, no. Right. Well, that was where I was kind of getting to. What was Alan's p feelings or position towards Eric? If you know. Well, I mean, Eric and Lara lived in our building. I, I, I think he was threatened by all the kids coming in. I think that sort of made him feel like he might not be valuable. You know, they were sort of taken over. They had to 
earn his worth more. But I do say, I mean, I do think he does sort of respect and sort of, <laughs> you know, bow down to all of them because of who they are. You know, I wasn't in that office. I'm really shocked that he, I've never seen him blatantly treat Don like that. That's awful, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't say he treated him that way. He would talk behind his back. Really? Yeah, he would. When I would sit with him, so he'd be like, you know, the kid is just lost. And he would make all sorts of comments, especially when Don got into a couple of different issues with real estate here and there. And, you know, then we had like the Trump mortgage debacle. And then, you know, he would basically he would repeat and he would parrot what Donald would say is the kid just has no he has no judgment. He just has terrible judgment, things like that. But then now I want to come up to the point of princess. Princess Ivanka. Now, that's the one person that Alan never said a single word to or about. He just did basically whatever he said because of the fear, I would suspect, that, you know, if in fact he crossed Ivanka, that that would be it for him. That's why you don't do that. There's no way. I got that impression with Don. I think they sort of felt like he didn't do a great job. He didn't know what he was doing. It sort of was a mess that he was working there. You know, everyone has different skills. I think he's a nice person, a good father. Um, but I can see that happening. Ivanka, totally different story. Totally different story. You know, the apple of the eye, the one that I think he felt, I don't think he felt proud of the others, quite frankly. He didn't think they were adequate enough and they worked there but i don't know if you really listened to what they said but you don't have to talk to your son that way awful make him feel less than maybe make someone rise up and teach but i think brown that would sit his needs perfectly let's just i mean when i you know ivanka oh no way i would never disrespect her i, I used to think that she was a really good person I, I think that i used to think she had a moral compass i'm not sure if that power that goes in the White House uh, changes people. But I didn't find that really appropriate. I always had, we had, you know, mommy classes together with our children. Uh, You know, they were really good to me. We sat together for the presidential parade at the inauguration in the box and they were lovely, Jared. But I think she was so hoity-toity about being there. Like now she'd arrived. She was the first lady. It was her and her dad. And that's the impression I got. Shocked me a little bit. Yeah, I could, I could understand that. But re- remember one thing, and he said it to Ivanka too, to all three kids in front of myself, in front of many people. You're no different than anybody else, and I'll fire your asses as soon as, as soon as, as quickly as I would fire anybody else in this. Place I didn't know that. If you fuck up, I didn't know that. One hundred percent, one hundred percent to all of them, and he was, he was equally as rough on Eric, though. He was by far the roughest on Don Jr. And I'm with you when it comes to Vanessa. One of the saddest things was when, you know, Don first had the affair. And then, of course, when they ultimately broke up. I think she's amazing. I love Vanessa. I will always love Vanessa. She's, she's, she's really good people. And she's a great mom. And I give her a lot, of, uh, a lot of love and a lot of respect for that. We still talk. She called me to say, did you know that Alan ran our divorces and... Alan decided we were getting divorced in uh, December 2018 because it benefited him tax-wise. We were tax write-off for Alan, and so he orchestrated our uh, divorces at the same time. I mean, you made me a tax write-off. You designed when this was happening. I mean, she couldn't believe it, but I didn't know. Vanessa is a really great mom and a sweet person, and you know, we we do still speak, and we both agree that um, 
you need to lead the best life for your kids. And, you know, it's sad that they're not together, but they were always a really good family when we saw them out. Yep. I agree with you on that one. Well, do me this favor. Since we've talked so much about Alan, describe the ways in which Alan sacrificed, in your opinion, his own happiness so that Donald was looked after. Because I'm with you on this one. I mean, it was Donald this, Donald that, Donald this, Donald that. I mean, it's actually more than anybody else that I've ever seen. You know, how many times that he would come to Donald's rescue? I'll give you an example. Like we had a guy named Larry and Larry got for example, his bonus cut, right? Which Alan was the one responsible for it. Every He would always say, oh, well, you know, Donald this, Donald that. It's bullshit. It was always Alan because Alan benefited. There's a dollar number that they wanted and they would take money from everybody so that Alan could keep his and that he'd get whatever perks that he wanted. And he and Donald were in and out. It was freaking fracked the whole bit. How did Alan sacrifice his own happiness for Donald? I mean, he just rolled over to protect and please someone. And that's your whole worth. And then you try to play the humble. I'm in the background thing. I I bought that. I'm not going to use Donald's perks. And then you come into the city and all of a sudden you're trying to play that game of, you know, being one of the kids and being one of, you know, you know, the calamaris or whatever. It it definitely changed him. It became uh, more of his life. But as you know, he, he, him and Al, uh, Hillary was supposed to go to Italy on a trip, the first one he ever took. He didn't take vacations because he didn't feel comfortable. He felt nervous. If Donald was in the office, he had to be there. He would not take off. No way. He was so nervous. Uh, he had to control the deals, make his place. I mean, he was always, you know, the one that was creative. And But how did he sacrifice? You know, when you move to Florida because you make an arrangement that your boss is, but when you won't move to Boca where everyone wants, you move to Boynton because it's closer to the when the plane leaves. So you go on Friday night with Donald and talk business. And then you Saturday, you go separately, you know, on the phone, whatever. But then Sunday was a mess. He had to live in an area that was close enough to Donald calling. I don't know. That wasn't really real to me, but you better be there before him. He was so nervous about what he thought about. It was just like he was, it was like it was homage. It's not a normal relationship for a job. I mean, I don't understand that dynamic. It's weird. Um, but, you know, he would sit by there on a Sunday. We couldn't go anywhere. Just, it just, uh, you know, it usually is between three and four. Okay. But if he calls early and I'm not there, da, 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 and I don't think he's doing anything. It just, it's a strange way to live. I don't know if it's that controlling that Donald would probably say like, where, where are you? I mean, I don't want to wait for you, but. I think you have to man up and establish a relationship, right? It is a job. You know, who are you? Are you just his worth is I have a guy for this. I have a guy for that. I can get you a job. Usually that he's putting in place for his benefit. I have a guy for this. Oh, I'm the one who gets everyone guys and everyone gets NYP date. You don't need to go to jury duty. You want something? I got it. He was so like, I'm the man, but it was Donald's resources. You know what I mean? Just strange, not healthy. I've never seen anything like it. Not even kind of normal. Uh, his whole worth is based around uh, pleasing Donald and saving him money and protecting him. But I just wonder if he protects himself and throws everyone else under the bus. You know, I'm not sure about Al. Well, like I said, if he was smart, you know, he's got to protect his own ass. He's got to protect what money he's got. He's got to protect Barry and Jack. But let me ask you this question. 
right? Because you mentioned Matt Calamari, the chief financial officer. There's no love lost between Alan and Matt. I mean, they were constantly feuding all the time, right? Which is so unhealthy to think that your CFO and your COO are battling 24-7. What do you think they were battling for? What family is really ahead? Like Donald Calamari, Weisselberg. Alan was so jealous of Matt Postured. I remember they... Donald invited uh, Hillary and, and Alan to go to the Christmas party in 17, the first year in the White House. And what I heard at my house was, <laughs> he didn't invite the calamaris. Oh my God. <laughs> he invited us. That's the mentality. It's not supportive. It's, it, I mean, they, they don't like each other. I don't, they don't like calamaris. I don't know if they're jealous, but they don't like anyone else to succeed. They want to dim everyone. He wants to dim everyone's shine. You know, he's just, he wants to be a relationship between the two of them. Anything else is, is not okay. It's just, yeah, it's a war with them. I always found it strange. And sometimes I'd have to be sort of like trying to be the peacekeeper, me of all I'm people, sure. right? To be the peacekeeper between the two of them. Cause the four of us, me, Alan, Matt, and this guy named Ron, we were the Part, we were the gang of four as it related to dealing with all the insurance. And and um, I'll tell you, they would each shit on the other one behind each other's back to each other's faces. Yeah, there was no love lost there. And I again, I just found it so odd that a guy with the title of CFO and the guy with the title of COO really despise each other. And yet, I hate to say it, the guy who sort of created that tension happened to be the CEO, Donald Trump himself. But let me ask you this other question. In what way did the Weisselbergs' devotion, and I mean as a family, to, to the Trumps, impact your own life and actually that of your children negatively as well? Uh, we're controlled by, you know, I found out that uh, when Alan started paying for an apartment, supposedly that, you know, I chose to move into uh, when it wasn't a Trump apartment. And he started saying that, you know, he was paying for it because he doesn't pay for his own stuff. So he could, um, he wanted me to bow down to him. You know, I don't believe any of that stuff came from him. It was compensation, but how did it affect the family? I mean, he talked, no one else did. Um, I mean, he's abusive. It's normalized. Uh, from his parents to Barry, uh, for, to Hillary and Allen, and then to Barry. Um, that's the only thing my kids know. And it's the control is that he runs the money and he makes the decisions. Allen's not going to like not have both nights of Rosh Hashanah, uh, one night of Rosh Hashanah. You can't like tell him that. He's going to do it. He wants both. He wants both. There's no, there's no, um, he, he's not going to ask you anything. It's, you know, it's full control. It, you know, I think that my kids, they don't necessarily want to be told what school to go to. Want to be told that, like, the camp is that. Do you have a right to change? Well, I don't know if Alan feels like it. You know, it's Alan's decision if uh, and everything we do. Do we go to Short Hills? Like, no, no, no. You know, that might, the art of the deal for him is protect ourselves. What if the heat goes out? What if this? What if this? It was like I was married to him. You know, like Barry Nable, Barry and him talk 24-7. I did not feel like I had a say, you know. He, he never, it was it was him and his dad. I was always, you know, alone with the kids. But it's very controlling. The kids felt it. You know, in fact, they lived the same life. The first week of every year, same thing. It's monotonous. 
Trump Club for Mother's Day, golf on the weekends, this and that. Um, and I just, he likes controlling. I think that when you control a family through, through Donald's, um, either generous gifts or you act like a mini Donald, either when you take over in 17 or when you are at home, um, you just want to be revered. I mean, he acted like he wanted to be respected that way because of who he was in the organization, but he just couldn't be a family person. He didn't respect a mother at home. I mean, uh, we did have a really good relationship. I was the daughter he never had. And, you know, he was proud of having the first daughter with Ava, but that, it, that I think that kind of meant that uh, I had given him that after converting. It was required, but I gave him a child. You know, it seemed like when Barron was born and they weren't that far apart, there was some sort of confusion about the fact that Donald had a son and Alan had a granddaughter, but he was going to treat Ava like his son. I mean, that's what it felt like. Uh, they, we feel controlled. We don't make any decisions ourselves. We are. Alan decides where we live, what we do. I went to get my car one time to take the kids to hockey. It was gone. Wait, what? Alan decided to give it to Stacy. He wants to rearrange the payments. Wait, what? He decided everything. And then made me feel like so grateful for it. Um, but he just has to control every deal. He's decided, oh, well, this will benefit that. He doesn't really have a right. He wouldn't let us have our own life. Still. But smart enough for Jack, uh, Barry's brother, he was out of the family sort of dynamics. He didn't work for the Trump organization, though he ended up becoming a big lender uh, through his through the company he works at, uh, Ladder Capital, right, to the Trump organization. But Jack separated himself out. Did Jack uh, and Jack's wife, did they have the same sort of uh, funky dynamic with Alan? that Barry did uh, and you? No, not at all. I mean, I felt a little envious. I mean, I think Alan put him in that, the, the job at UBS. He said he got his job from his dad, which is nothing wrong with that, by the way, if you do a good job. Um, you know, but I, I think Alan finds, he puts his family in places where it benefits him, um, you know, inside the organization. No, Jack despised the way his uh, father abused his mother. Um, and so he didn't want to be like him um, and he was stronger, but Barry idolized him and, you know, sort of liked his mother, but abused uh, his mother the same way and, and condoned it and thought it, they don't see anything wrong with that. They are two peas in a pod. It's, it's, they're exactly the like, I mean, you know, Jack was different, you know, Jack, um, Jack, uh, had his own values, you know, would stand up and say, this is right for my family. It was different. Well, he wasn't reliant on, um, you know, on Trump or the Trump organization. And so he had that obvious, that uh, ability. It's one thing when you're working as part of the company and it's another when you're on the outside. But, you know, Jen, as we're now winding down the hour, I have just one last question for you. And I, you riffed on this one as much as you want. It's a two-part question. Do you believe, first and foremost, that Donald Trump is evil? Absolutely, yeah. And do you believe that he belongs behind bars? Yes, absolutely. Uh, is he evil? I mean, if you had feelings or soul, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, no. Yeah, uh, evil is a hard word to say, but no empathy, no soul. Just in for himself, I don't think he's that smart. I mean, 
um, he likes to be the man. I mean, I always thought of him as the publicity guy, but uh, yeah, I think he's evil to promote to the insurrection, scared my daughter. I don't know anybody that would do that, but to me, it was predictable. Having him there blows my mind, Michael. I just don't get it. I think he's uh, in there for self-interest. And I, yeah, I think they're all evil. I really do. There's, they don't have souls. They don't care about anyone else. It's, I feel like I'm like Pence or Bard. It's like when we're done, we're done with you. Like, it's just sort of, they see no value in human life. There's something about the relationships that are, I've never known anyone like Alan or I think Alan sort of enables Donald. It's the same behavior. And then he taught his son and they're so, uh, they're all the same to me. Um, it's, it's, yeah, there's no moral compass. I don't, I never knew Alan was anything but on the straight and narrow because when I met him, he was faithful and sort of kept it at distance. But when he started living in the city, it became um, everything. And he lived the life in the city, you know? So yeah, I think they're evil. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's something at the core that doesn't have any kindness. You can do a deal. And I think the other person can still make out. You can help people rise up to do what he's done to some of us that, you know, I've done so much for this family and been loyal and sacrificed. I cannot in my mind register how someone would do this to somebody. They treat people so bad. They threaten people. They intimidate them. They influence, you know, litigation in courts. I mean, none of this is like, how, how is this acceptable? Like, who are you? Misuse of power, misuse, uh, of, you know, the office uh, of the presidency supposed to be for the people. I think it's an honor and privilege to have been there, quite frankly. And I don't know what you did with it, but, you know, shame on you. And Alan, you have a choice to work there. I know that you're enmeshed in it, but you still have a choice. I wouldn't stay at a job that compromised that. You know, it's let me tell you something. It's very difficult. And, you know, you bring up a lot of points there you know, in terms of Alan protecting Donald and always thinking about Donald before himself and putting the Trump family before the Weisselberg family. I was no different. And I sometimes I sit, you know, I, I take walks by myself um, for many different reasons. One, it gives me a chance to think and to have some clarity uh, as I, you know, I walk around the city, which I'm allowed, um, you know, a couple hours, two hours a day. But I also walk by myself because I fear for my family's safety. And I don't want anybody, you know, with me. There are still bad people out there. But I sometimes when I sit and I walk and I, I loathe myself, I, re- I truly do, because I put the Trump family ahead of my own family. And, you know, one of the things I had said to George Stephanopoulos when I finally woke up to the reality that I had just gotten, you know, not just thrown under the bus, but, you know, kicked in the face and then, you know, uh, and then basically, you know, (laughs) thrown back under the bus afterwards when I said that, you know, my wife, my daughter, my son and my country have to have my first loyalty. Maybe you're right. The word evil is too strong of a word. Um, It's just it's just disturbing the fact that he doesn't care about anyone or anything other than himself. And he will throw Alan under the bus 
as fast as he threw me. He could take that 40 years of being a loyal employee. But one thing that Alan keeps forgetting, and if he's listening to the podcast, I hope he hears me on this one, right? Loyalty with Donald is like First Avenue. It's one way. And worse than that, Alan has to remember, first and foremost, he is and he will always be nothing more than an employee. He is not family. And as far as Trump is concerned, Don, Eric, and then Ivanka will be thrown under the bus in order to save them, in order for Donald to save himself, because he is, in his mind, the king. He is the single most important person that God has on this planet right now. He is basically has a divine right and that everybody is there to serve him. And that includes his children, right? It includes everybody. So, yeah, um, I, I also believe that he belongs behind bars for what he is truly guilty of. And one of the things I know that you're also speaking with the district attorney, as I am, uh, it's been obviously widely reported. You know, one of the reasons that I'm doing, I have no benefit out of it. Neither do you, right? It's not, I've asked them for nothing and they have offered me right. nothing. But I'm doing it because, and I say this to everybody and people think I'm crazy or a little bit crazy. I will not be remembered in history as the villain of Donald Trump's story. I, I didn't have the affairs. All I did is I followed the direction of my boss that provided a benefit to him. And I was stupid. And I suffered my family suffering to this day. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I'm going to offer you. Weren't, you're a nice person. You're a nice, generous person for many reasons to this family because it is a family. It is a family. It's small. But I hate what they do because you, they don't realize how that affects your wife when you're gone, how that affects, you know, just toss somebody, your children. You know, it's really. Listen, that's evil. I'm sorry. I can't explain it. There's some there, it, I just think you don't have a soul. And it's uh, but it's like anything with Pence and Barr or Giuliani. You just I think people have to know I'm not going to call it evil. That's not for me to say. But. You know, there are people like that that are not good humans. Um, you know, when they're done with you, they're done with you. If you don't, you know. When they're done with you, they're done with you. And they don't remember anything that was, they were grateful for. It's just weird. I can't relate. But I'm going to rise up too. I mean, I'm not going to be remembered for the way they made my life because they decided to. When Barry divorced me and suddenly my, my, um, my finances started to come out during your situation with the SDNY unexpectedly and Alan freaked because um, I don't think you want him out there. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm in a war of, uh, of finances that have come up, but I'm doing the right thing by the DA. They called me and um, I do the right thing. I have not talked to Alan and Barry since like 19. Um, I, I don't want to be separated from them, but it's not vengeful. I don't really care what happens to them, but ex except for one thing, uh, they're criminals and what they do is illegal and threatening and I know you said you were a part of it, but when you go there, there's really not an option. <laughs> you get sucked into it. It's not right. They need to uh, be responsible. No, I'm responsible for my own actions. Nobody, nobody controlled me. I didn't need the job. I didn't need the money. It was, um, I made my mistakes. They made their mistakes. I paid and I paid heavily 
for my mistakes. And I believe that they need to be responsible, all of them, for their dirty deeds. And Jen, I want to again thank you so much, you know, for your time tonight. Uh, I know it's been a long day. It was uh, fun. For me as well. It was fun to talk to you. I think we can relate. I, I wish you the best. And absolutely, you and I will speak again. I love your family. We've known each other's family. And that's what it is. And there's no conspiring. You know, we do the right thing. We rise up. And if I'm not going to have this legacy either, I'm going to show them strong. Be an example for my kids. And I don't condone this behavior. I'm happy to be away from it. That's all I want is freedom from it. That's it. Well, you be good and I'll speak Thank to you Thank you for soon. having me. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Jen. And now for today's mea culpa. When I speak of the collective trauma we've been put through as a country by Donald Trump, it's easy to lose track of the specifics. The fact that he was criminally negligent in his handling of COVID-19 should be enough for him to sit behind bars for decades. But there was so much more. From his exacerbation of racial anger in the wake of George Floyd murder and his cynical stoking of that violence throughout the summer, to his lies and provocations during his ugly campaign and post-election big lie, and finally the January 6th storming of the Capitol, we saw what looked to be one of those end-of-history moments where there was nowhere for us to go as a nation but down into some kind of political hell. The hope was that Joe Biden would be the one to heal us as a nation that he would harness our grief, our anger, and our fear, and help us get to the other side. And in many ways, he has done just that, acting as our therapist-in-chief. But on the other hand, we must reckon with the possibility that a return to normal will be far from actually being fucking normal. The fact is that we are reckoning with a time where what we think we know and what we think we understand has been completely obliterated. The speed of change and the amount of information that is being decoded is being done faster than we are able to comprehend. I fear that we are in fact headed towards another cliff that is far steeper and more dire than the one we just found ourselves plummeting. We are coming apart as a nation. The center will not hold. The question is, what comes next? How many more people have to die before there is real action? The only answer for me is to get loud and get angry and demand action to counter the coming chaos. At least I'll go down swinging. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch. And it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa.
Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Business as usual is a thing of the past, but the entrepreneurial spirit keeps us closing in on our dream. That's why U.S. Bank makes sure solutions are a conversation away. So we can help you adapt and evolve your business, no matter what comes up. Because even in uncertainty, you can be certain we have your back. U.S. Bank. We'll get there together. Equal housing lender, member FDIC. What's the room again? Uh, 1240, down at the end. Ooh, what's that? Sammy, don't touch that. That's someone's old food. Here we are. Do you have the key? You have both of ours. Oh, right. Not working. Rub it. Come on. Try flipping it over. Seriously. Why can't we go inside? Just honey, let me try. Uh, I'm tired. Give me yours. You have mine. All right. What? Please, if you Dad, could just... Why aren't you opening the door? Need... Can everyone just shut the... Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.